My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our first scripture reading, our first and only scripture reading, is from the Gospel of Luke. We're reading Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When you are going camping, uh, never plan on sleeping in a hammock. That is just a little tip tip that I picked up on the most disastrous camping trip that I've ever been on. It was my sophomore year of college, and my whole friend group decided that we should go on a little backpacking trip in the Smoky Mountains over spring break. None of us had ever been backpacking before. We had no experience, and we had no money. But we did not let that stop us. We went on a Walmart shopping spree. We bought the cheapest possible gear that we could find. And we charted out a four days and three nights hike through a slice of the Appalachian Trail in northern Tennessee. And yes, we decided that we did not need and could not afford a proper tent. So we decided that we would just sleep in the hammocks that we often set up on the very sunny Sanford University quad in in order to pretend to do homework and to flirt with one another. That first night... After we had hiked a good seven or eight miles away from our cars into the Smoky Mountain wilderness and we had hooked up our hammocks to some pine trees, the temperature dropped to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. A just crazy cold snap came out of nowhere We had because we had checked the weather app at the very least a couple days before. And here's the thing. When you are in a hammock, the breeze just totally encapsulates you because you're just hanging in midair, right? It flows over you and under you and on all sides, like you're in some kind of reverse convection oven and it sucks the warmth, it sucks it right out of your bones. Needless to say, that night was, it was just terrible. And when I woke up the next day, or no, when, when the sun came up the next day, I didn't sleep at all that night. When the sun came up the next day, I took the little you know wool hat that I had been wearing over the course of the hike the previous day and through the night in order to keep my ears warm. I took it off my head and it held its shape like, like a little dome, because my sweat in the morning dew had frozen solid over the course of the night around my head. We were around the campfire the next morning, and we were comparing notes, and we were a little relieved to hear that everybody was just as miserable as everybody else. And we also found out that each of us had independently discovered that the best survival move was to take your gloves off of your hands and put them on your feet, each and every one of us had our gloves on our feet by the time the morning came because your hands, you can like put those by your mouth and blow over them like the, you know, the, that kind of thing. But we literally thought that our toes might be freezing off frostbite. And so we had to repurpose our gloves. 
Uh, well, and being young and stupid, we actually decided to continue further into the wilderness the next day. Uh, we did plan to pick up the pace a bit so that we would only have to spend one more night out there and instead of two. And we were planning on making a makeshift tent out of our tarps and just sleeping in one giant pile of body heat. But several hours later, we passed by another group of hikers who were wearing what looked like parkas. And they casually asked us as they walked by us, so y'all ready for the blizzard? To which we said, what are you talking about? Apparently the cold snap was continuing and the forecast for that night was 18 to 24 inches of snow. And at that point, we were almost perfectly equidistant from our cars in the end of the trail. So we couldn't just bail and go back. It would just take just as long to go backwards. And so we had to sit down and we literally had a conversation about whether or not we thought that we could physically survive the coming night and make it back down the mountain the next day with freshly fallen snow covering all the trails. We decided that we could not do that and that we had no choice but to make it through all of the rest of the trail before the sun had set. Remember, this was supposed to be a four-day hike, and we had to get it done in about eight hours. So we were quite literally jogging through the Appalachian Trail, up and down a mountain, and as we watched, as we watched the sun slowly set around us. We did make it. I am here to testify to the fact that we did make it, but it was, it was by far the most exhausting experience of my life. So that's the most disastrous camping trip that I've ever been on. But in the midst of almost freezing to death and sprinting through the mountains, I also, paradoxically, experienced a kind of peace and tranquility that was unlike any that I'd ever had before. It was on that first evening when I was still filled with the irrational bliss of being 20 years old and out on an adventure with all of my friends. It was right after I got into my hammock for the night and right before the temperature bottomed out from 45 degrees down to 10. For about a half an hour, I was fairly comfortable. I was slowly swaying back and forth and I was staring up at the quietest and most brilliant night sky that I'd ever seen. We were far enough away from any civilization that there was no light pollution. The entire Milky Way was sprawled out before me, and it was breathtaking. It made me think of that line in the creation story in Genesis 1 when it says, God created the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and all of the stars. As if all of the stars, the billions of gargantuan spheres of burning gas whose majesty and beauty have dazzled humanity throughout all of history, as if all of the stars, that was just like an afterthought for the creator God. It was just a creative flourish that he decided to throw in there on a whim at the end of the fourth day. And I just laid there in the silence and the beauty of the night and felt what, what seemed like a peace that surpassed all understanding. And then the wind picked up and I lost all feeling in my extremities and the rest of the trip was horrible. Uh, but I hope, I hope that you have a moment that, like that that you can think back to, a moment of staring out peacefully into a totally silent and clear night. It's a very specific kind of mood that that kind of experience puts you into. A sort of pensive wonder is probably how I would put it. Hopefully, your experience doesn't immediately lead into a fight for your very survival, but even if it does, you might actually have concluded that it was worth it. And I think that is part of the reason why everybody loves the story that we read from the Gospel of Luke this morning about the angels coming to the shepherds. Those first few phrases in verse 8, they're so familiar. There were, in the same region, some shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And with the sort of efficiency and economy that is just so characteristic of the biblical narrative, not a single word is out of place or wasted. The story transports us from the manger scene in Bethlehem, which directly precedes that line, transports us from the dingy barn in the midst of that small city, which though surely not a metropolis was uh, definitely had the sounds and sights of civilization. We're transported away from Bethlehem to the grassy fields outside of town to a scene of shepherds quietly watching their sheep under the tranquil tapestry of the stars. The familiarity of verse eight, it should evoke in your mind whatever kind of quiet, 
starlit experience you have had in your life. It should put you in that specific mood of hushed and pensive wonder. And then in verse 9, the silence and the quiet is shattered to pieces. We really have to read the next verse in the voice of the King James Version and Linus from Charlie Brown. Verse 9 says, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were so afraid. You can picture this in your mind's eye, right? That glassy midnight sky hanging above the shepherds who are half watching the sheep, half trying not to doze off. And that sky is just opened up. It's broken apart, like it says in the Gospel of Mark. And a burning, shining being envelops the horizon. The glory of the Lord lights up the glassy fields. And, you know, if this would have happened in on the Appalachian Trail, I would have flipped right out of my hammock. I can tell you that much. It makes total sense why the shepherds are terrified and cower before the angels. The angel reassures them, though, tells them about the sign of the baby Jesus, and then the majesty and the awe of the moment ratchets up even a few more steps in verse 13, and suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It's just such a striking and memorable story. It's the kind that you hear as a child and just remember forever for the rest of your life. We are continuing our Advent sermon series this week on our favorite Christmas hymns, and the song that we're looking at today is a kind of interpretation and expansion upon this story from Luke chapter 2. Its title and its opening line is, It came upon a midnight clear. This line mirrors Luke 2 verse 8, the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. It too establishes that quiet, pensive wonder of a silent, starlit night. It came upon a midnight clear. But then the rest of the hymn focuses on the angels that shattered that silence. Specifically, the hymn interprets the message that they came to sing. That glorious song of old, the hymn calls it, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Each verse of the hymn imagines the angels singing this glorious song of old throughout history and in different contexts, different times and places. And we're going to go through those verses together near the end of our time today. But before we go through the verses of the hymn, we need to make sure that we have a good grasp, I think, of the contents of this glorious song of old. What is this song about? What is it saying? What does it mean for a bunch of angels to break apart the midnight clear in order to sing to terrified shepherds glory to God and peace on earth? This week in our worship uh, in our sanctuary on McCray Street, we read the second Advent candle, the peace candle. And the concept of peace, the claim that through the baby Jesus, God was working to bring peace to the world. That is a fundamental component of the Christmas story, and I think it's the overarching message of the angel's song. Jesus is here to bring peace on earth. So we better figure out what peace means, right? That'd be a good place to start. Um, Now, you might be tempted to think, like we often are, unfortunately, well, peace just means peace. It's not a hard word. No need to pull out a dictionary or anything. But I honestly think this is one of the most common places where biblical interpretation can go astray. We read an English word that we've known forever, a word like peace, and then we assume that whatever associations that we have with that word, whatever images and concepts and meanings that that five-letter word conjures up in our brains, those must be the same images, concept, and meanings that the biblical authors intended when this story was written down. But unfortunately, that is, that's just not how language works. The Bible, I hope that we all know, was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic. And the people groups in the cultures that produced the Bible had very different associations and views of the world, and thus very different understandings of key words and concepts. The word dog is a great example of this. I hear the word dog, I think of my wonderful golden doodle named Mowgli, who is quite honestly the joy of our lives. Uh, ver- but the Bible... Uh, 
dogs in the, dogs in the Bible are almost always consuming someone's flesh as, as a punishment for terrible sin. So very different associations and nuances to the word dog in the Bible. When I read Psalm 22 and the psalmist writes in verse 17 that dogs surround me, I should not picture a pack of fluffy puppies jumping all over me and giving me little puppy kisses. No, the psalmist is telling me that he is in serious trouble. Similarly, when biblical translators look at the Hebrew and the Greek texts underlying the the verses from Luke chapter 2, and they decide to go with the English word peace, they're just doing their best, right? They're making an imperfect approximation. They are picking a word that will hopefully point us in the right direction, but will almost always fail to get us all the way there. And so I'm wondering, what do you think when you hear the word peace? I almost always think of that hammock on the Appalachian Trail, the tranquil quiet of that starlit night. But that can't be what the angels mean when they sing about bringing peace, right? The song of peace, their song of peace, was so loud and so glorious, it shattered the calm midnight clear and sent the the shepherds cowering. The other thing that I often think about when I hear the word peace is the symbol, the peace symbol. You know, the one with the circle and the lines in it, the one on all the VW bugs and that kind of thing. I did a little internet research this past week looking for the origin and meanings behind that symbol. And I wonder if you know that the peace symbol was created in 1958 as the logo for the British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. The British Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. The peace symbol was their logo, and that's where it originated. Which I thought was kind of funny, actually, in sort of a really dark way, because that is just such a low bar for peace, right? Like, what would it mean to bring peace on Earth, according to the peace symbol? Well, if we could just not blow each other up with nuclear weapons, thereby turning the planet into an inhospitable wasteland. That would be a great start. We'll settle for that as far as peace goes. The Bible has a very specific, a very nuanced, and I think a very profound concept of peace. And we're going to try to build up our biblical conception of peace by looking at three different places where the word for peace appears in the Old Testament, and thereby hopefully we'll get a better understanding of the angel's song. The word for peace in the Hebrew is shalom. Maybe you actually knew that. It's one of the more common Hebrew words as far as making it into the English lexicon. Our first look at Shalom is going to be in Job chapter 5, verse 24. Now, we know the story of Job pretty well, right? Like, God makes a wager with Satan about this poor guy named Job, and he loses everything and then gets everything back. Very well known. But most of the book is actually poetry, Hebraic poetry, which has its own conventions and styles. And that's the case here. In Job chapter 5, verse 24, Job is speaking in verse, and he says, You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and find nothing missing. Hebrew poetry tends to have two lines, and the second line explains or expounds upon the first. So here the first line is, you shall know that your tent is at peace, and the second line describes how you're going to know that. How will you know that your tent is at peace, that it's at shalom? Because you'll inspect your fold, meaning your flocks of animals, and you will find that nothing is missing. Does that make sense to y'all, based on how you think of peace? Sort of, right? But, but, not, but not quite. We tend to, I think that we would tend to think of a camp at peace as quiet and calm. The animals are sleeping, maybe. There isn't any ruckus. But that isn't how the Bible is using it here, is it? Your camp could be a din of animal sounds and workers and children running about and playing. But if everyone is accounted for, if no one or no animal is missing, then Job says that his camp is at shalom. Peace is when nothing is missing that should be present. The next verse is Exodus chapter 22, verse 4, and this is in the middle of the law codes that Moses brings down from Mount Sinai, the precepts that the Israelites were to organize their society around. And this verse reads, if anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, 
then the offender must make restitution from their own best field or vineyard. What? It's hard to even find the word peace in there, is it? But it's there. Shalom is in there. Basically, what this verse is saying is that if your animal gets out and eats up one of your neighbor's crops, then you must bring your neighbor shalom. You must bring them back to peace by paying back their losses from your own crops. So here we get the sense that shalom, peace, is the righting of injustice and the restoration of harm. One more. This is from the book of Kings, and it's right as Solomon is finally finishing the temple, right? He's finally built that permanent dwelling place for God's presence in the nation of Israel. This is a hugely momentous event in the life of God's people. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 25, the text says, Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. And so he finished the temple, end quote. Where do you think shalom is in this verse? It's in that word finished. By putting the last brick into the walls and by offering the first sacrifices, Solomon has completed the temple. He has brought it to shalom. He's brought it to completeness. He's brought it peace. And so what is the biblical conception of peace, do you think? Very different, right, from a quiet evening in a hammock and a lot more ambitious than, hey, maybe we shouldn't nuke each other to death. Here's how I think I would sum it up. The Bible, the Bible understands that human life is complex and that it's made up of a lot of interlocking pieces, family relationships, employment, economic conditions, social conditions, um, social connections, physical bodily health. And any time one of those components falls out of place, your sheep runs away or someone destroys your field or your projects that you've been working on cannot reach fulfillment. When this kind of stuff happens, then your shalom, your peace is broken. It's disordered, and it has to be restored. It has to be brought back together. Peace is wholeness. It's completeness. It's everything rightly ordered. And so the angels announce the birth of Jesus Christ, and they sing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Through the baby Jesus, God is working to bring about shalom for the entire world, to bring wholeness and completeness to all of creation. There are things missing from this world. Through Jesus, God is working to restore them. There, there is injustice in this world. And through Jesus, God is wor working to right this wrong. This world is not yet complete. It is not yet as it should be. Through Jesus, God is, bringing to br is working to bring the world to completeness, to bring shalom, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. If you have a way of accessing the lyrics for uh, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, looking up on your computer or something, I recommend you do it now. Um, if you're driving, I guess just listen really carefully because we're going to finish this morning by reading through the rest of the verses of this hymn and with that this understanding of the angel's song in mind. Starting in verse 2, verse 2 reads, Still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled, and still their heavenly music floats o'er all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains they bend on hovering wing, and over all its babble sounds the blessed angels sing. And this verse, the hymn, uh, leaves behind the grassy fields outside of Bethlehem. It zooms out, so to speak, and it imagines the angels singing their song of peace, their song of shalom in the background of all of human history. Behind every scene of sadness and brokenness that takes place on the weary world floats the angels' music, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So behind all of the tragic wars and conflicts that we read about in our history books, behind the trials and the tribulations of our own day, behind our own messy and divisive politics, behind this pandemic that seems so frustratingly without end, behind it all are angels singing peace on earth, 
God is working towards wholeness, towards completeness. God is going to put all to right. The third verse zooms back in, in from the worldwide scale down to the individual person. It actually addresses you, the singer or the reader. It says, and you and ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. When I read through and prayed through this third verse for this past week, it reminded me of just how painful and difficult the holiday season can be for people who have lost a loved one in the last year or the last couple years. There there are so many people uh, within our own congregation and within just uh, our broader circles for whom this Christmas will be the first Christmas without a spouse, without a parent, or without a friend. Uh, My wife actually has a friend from college who lost her husband to leukemia only a couple of months ago. They'd only been married for a couple years. They're in their mid-20s. And um, I can't even imagine the loss, the, the sense that something so dear and precious is missing. It's out of place. Something that should be there is gone. It's just a terrible rupture of shalom, a horrible break of peace. And my prayer, I guess, for everyone feeling that way this season is that God uh, might allow them to hear, even if very faintly and off in the distance, might allow them to hear this song of the angels floating over them in any and all circumstances, singing their song of peace, of shalom, reminding them that all will one day be restored and made whole once again. The final verse of the hymn completes this picture of Advent. It urges us to, on the confidence that comes from knowing that the baby Jesus came, it urges us to look forward to the second coming when God's work will be complete. It reads, For lo, the days are hastening on by prophet seen of old, when with the ever-circling years shall come the time foretold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world send back the song, which now the angels sing. I love particularly those last two lines. When all is said and done, and the whole, the whole world is going to send back the song, which now the angels sing. Right now, on this side of heaven and on this side of the coming of Jesus, the angels are singing a solo. They're singing peace on earth to a world that is still embroiled in frustration and confusion and pain and chaos. And in certain moments, we might be able to hear the song and we might be able to rejoice in it and take comfort in it, but it's fleeting. And we are yet unable to respond fully, to join the angels in their chorus. But this hymn envisions the day when the whole world has been fully redeemed and creation will send back the song. We will sing along with the heavenly hosts, peace on earth. God has brought shalom. And so when you listen along to this song in a few minutes um, or when and or you hear the angels song sometime in the future when Christmas rolls around again and we go through the advent wreath and you hear that phrase peace on earth goodwill toward men try to remember what that actually means what the bible means when it uses that word peace. Don't immediately go or at least don't settle finally on your hammock camping trip, right? That quiet starlit experience. Remember the angel's declaration of peace shattered the midnight clear. Now remember the thick and nuanced understanding of peace that we built together this morning. Peace as wholeness, as rightly ordered life, as all of the necessary constitutive elements finally being set in their correct place. Think of human societies where misunderstandings and conflicts no longer ruin communities and relationships, but where all are able to live in harmony uh, with one another. Think of families and friendships that are not broken apart by absence or death, but instead are wholly remade. Fissures are healed, 
those who are lost are restored. And think of your own life with its gaps and its incongruities, the physical ailments that aren't going to heal, the relationships that aren't quite right, the sins and shortcomings that you can't quite shake. And imagine the angels singing that glorious song of old over it all, peace, shalom, wholeness. That's the promise of the baby Jesus, and that is the final work of Christ, the conquering King. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.